Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's conversational corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topics, Theodore Roosevelt's War. The Gilded Age was an era in which America became a world-class economic and demographic power, and few wanted to use that power for diplomatic and military ends more than Theodore Roosevelt, first as Assistant Secretary to the Navy, then as President, then as prominent former President, Roosevelt seemed the most enthusiastic presidential advocate for war the country had ever seen, especially in the years before American entry into the First World War. What led to this enthusiasm and even obsession? Why was he so gung-ho about dying in war? And how did his country react to this particular monomania? With me to discuss at least some of these questions is Dr. David Petruja, author of TR's Last War. David, welcome. Okay. Good to be here. So let's start uh, from the beginning. Uh, The Civil War is over, and Theodore Roosevelt has missed the boat and missed the opportunity to participate in what what was the defining conflict for for many generations. How did he feel about that and the fact that his father ultimately did not participate? Well, I think think it was a sense of uh, embarrassment for him that uh, his father uh, not only didn't participate, but like Grover Cleveland, more famously, uh, paid uh, a large sum of money to a volunteer to go go and fight for him. Now, the father, I guess, had his reasons. Um, You know, it was a war of brother against brother. And in the Roosevelt family, it was brother-in-law versus brother-in-law. The uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Uh, had married a southern girl, and so her brothers were actually fighting on the side of the Confederacy. So imagine a, a situation like that. But nonetheless, Theodore Roosevelt, who's always struggling to prove his manliness because he was such a, a sickly child, uh, is, um, you know, no doubt thinking more and more about, you know, proving your manhood in terms of war. So it's, it's, uh, it's a complex situation, but it, um, his warlike nature, his love of war, uh, stems back uh, to early childhood. Okay. Um, so... How exactly uh, does this develop and percolate? Because after all, from the from uh, his childhood, uh, watching the Civil War until he actually gets his chance to be involved in a war in the Spanish-American War in 1898, uh, quite a few decades pass. Is he like chafing at the bit? Give me a chance to fight here. Give me a chance to fight here. Or is he simply uh, developing uh, other faculties? 
Well, he uh, Roosevelt goes off on to be uh, play sort of cowboys and Indians, maybe not so much Indians, but cowboys and cows uh, in the North Dakota uh, plains. Uh, prairies and you know prove his manliness against rustlers and things like that but in in the 1890s and then of course he's he's playing uh, cops and robbers as police commissioner with the city of, of new york as 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 one of the members of the police commissioner but the uh, com- police commission but really its most active member and its de facto uh, commissioner and then on to assistant secretary of the navy and in the 1890s you see uh, an increasing number of warlike statements from uh, Roosevelt where he says that the, oh, if, if there is trouble with Germany and they bombard the eastern cities, well, maybe that will teach our people some lessons about preparedness uh, and, and it'll be worth it. Or we should go, if there's a boundary dispute or some sort of dispute with uh, Great Britain, well, we could take Canada and, and, and annex it. Or go, uh, more famously, go to war with uh, Spain over Cuba, or even Germany over Samoa, if one can imagine such a scenario. But Roosevelt is beating the drums for all of those things and says to his sister, you know, uh, it would be uh, a, a great thing to have a war. Uh, so he's, he's, and then when he gives a speech uh, at the North, at the War College, I think the Naval War College, it's extremely uh, warlike and talking about how this is the, you know, the greatest glory that mankind can can enjoy it's it's one of the more warlike speeches in american history so you see that up and down uh, all the way till when he goes and fights in edna in cuba with the rough riders in the spanish-american war at the battle of san juan hill with the rough riders so he's big police commissioner and he's been assistant secretary of the navy um and he eventually becomes president after the assassination of William McKinley. I'm curious, though, um, how did uh, members of his own Republican Party uh, take this incredible bellicosity? Uh, not just because there were people who may have been principal pacifists, but also uh, there were a lot. Uh, the, the Republican Party was very much identified uh, with people who'd fought in the Union and who'd seen some much more combat than Theodore Roosevelt had been. Uh, did they think... Oh, this is great. This is one of us, someone who wants to be like us. Or did they say, gee, this guy hasn't really seen that many shots fired in anger, and here he wants to go to war everywhere? Well, the there's a dichotomy, as there usually is, between the two political parties, and the Democratic Party is much more, I don't know if you'd call it isolationist, but certainly non-interventionist, non-imperialist. That's, that's how the... the debate was phrased back then um, where America was not only going into Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Philippines but also uh, annexing the Hawaiian Islands the Kingdom of Hawaii that was a big big debate uh, under the uh, Harrison and Cleveland debates and a fellow like William Jennings Bryan would be running one of his campaigns uh, particularly in 1900, against this anti-imperialist uh, tendency, all of which is to say that in the Republican Party there is 
that tendency, um, most personified by Theodore Roosevelt, by Henry Cabot Lodge, who is his great friend, and by another great friend and political ally, a uh, fellow who's going to emerge as a another big progressive, uh, is Senator Albert Beveridge of Indiana. So that's that's the big triumvirate of of politicians. Uh, in the Republican Party, who are for war, and there is there is that tendency, and among those folks, uh, they think they think what Roosevelt is doing is 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 fine, and of course, you know, the uh, yellow press, uh, Pulitzer's papers, Hearst papers, they are, they are all beating the drums for war, which is uh, with Spain, which is supposed to be, and turns out to be a splendid little war. Um, and so you've got all those factors, and Theodore Roosevelt is riding that wave and rides it all the way, that wave, into the governorship of New York. Okay. Um, so he, Roosevelt, uh, he gets involved in the Spanish-American War. He administers them afterwards as president, and eventually he leaves uh, and he has his famous uh, crack up uh, with uh, with Taft in, in 1912, and Woodrow and having split the vote, Woodrow, Democrat Woodrow Wilson uh, wins the White House. A man who, as you clearly document in your book, Roosevelt absolutely despised. And yet, and yet, as you also document, when war actually breaks out in Europe and really breaks out in August 1914, you note that he is not really for the Germans, but he's really not all that gung-ho all of a sudden. What happened? That's one of the hardest things to explain about Theodore Roosevelt because it's it's out of character. Although one can also say that his there's a, there's a lot about him which is out of character in terms of war and, and bellicosity uh, and counterintuitive in that this is such a warlike president and person, and yet this is the guy who wins the Nobel Peace Prize. This is the guy who brings Japan and Russia together and stops the, the killing in the Far East. And when he's having to defend himself against charges of being so warlike as the war drags on in Europe, and he's arguing for increased preparedness, which is not a bad idea. Um, that he says, "Look, we we I never lost a man against a foreign foe. My almost eight years as president, it was it was a time of of peace. Now there is a caveat to when he says against the foreign foe, is that." Americans did take casualties, and there was fighting in in the Philippines as the uh, as the Moro War and the pacification of of the of those islands proceeded. But yes, it's um, it's it's his initial response to the German invasion of Belgium is one very Wilsonian in terms of, you know, we have to maintain our neutrality and we have to support the president. We, we can't get dragged into this. And then he's saying also publicly that uh, great powers do 
do things what, when they have to do. They have to look out for their own interest. Great powers like Germany, great, and you know the American record is not entirely unblemished uh, in this. So uh, his initial response is not what his he's going to be most famous for in terms of this. It's it's very measured. It's very on TR, but he's going to switch very quickly uh, into a more warlike um, stance, particularly with the sinking of, of the Lusitania. And when that happens, it's he calls it murder on the high seas, and he's not quite raring to go, but he is absolutely incensed against the Germans. And I think it's his, his, his 19th century Victorian stance code of honor, sense of chivalry when women and children are sunk on those ships. Uh, that, that that really outrages him and, and triggers him. I actually wanted to talk about that because I say that as someone who has been spending many years uh, reading about the First World War from many different perspectives. And I read your book, I read about how uh, he is outraged and of course many Americans are outraged about the sinking of the Lusitania. And yet, already by the time of the sinking of the Lusitania, the bloodshed uh, on all the fronts in the First World War is absolutely mind-boggling. It's probably, at this point, more than was shed in the entire Civil War uh, on both sides combined. And yet, his Victorian sense of honor is so strong that he writes these scathing letters as though people who are averse, afraid, maybe not so sure whether America should enter the war even with Lusitania, he says they must all be traitors, they must not, uh, all be not be real Americans, uh, they must be lily-livered pacifists or something. How is it that he can be, he can have like, he, he's so interested in war and yet he seems to have no awareness or understanding or at least sympathy for people who were on the tragic side of war, people who lost people say, you know what, I don't know if I wanted to lose my son or my brother or my husband. That's, that's absolutely mystifying about him, that a fellow of such immense intelligence has a real blind side as to what the, and, and a fellow who had been in war, who had seen his comrades killed, uh, who had seen the Spaniards killed, had seen the, the, the suffering of just gearing up for war uh, in terms of the sickness which goes along with the troops and the movements of dysentery and malaria and all that. Um, that that he does not see it. it it's it's a real moral blindness to him, and it's going to continue all all through his his life. Even even when his sons, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to, um, have to pay that price, uh, he he never really changes his stance. He just thinks that he, it is such a a romantic view of of such an unromantic thing of 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 the world war one slaughter of any war and he doesn't even seem to understand what's going on in terms of modern modern 1914 to 18 warfare where he talks about going and raising a regiment or a division of mounted cavalry to fight on the Western Front. Hello, 
has he not heard of trench warfare or these massive artillery bombardments, uh, the barbed wire, the machine guns, the poison gas? You know, he's talking about something like other than the Napoleonic Wars or something. Uh, uh, just a complete disconnect uh, in terms of, of the reality of, of what that all means and what the casualties are. Um, so, yes, you're entirely right about that. So, given that blind spot and given that vehemence, um, I guess, so, so the, they, uh, for three years, America stays neutral, and I think Woodrow Wilson goes a little bit too far in trying to avoid even minimal preparedness. But ultimately, Germany, for its own reasons, uh, makes the decision we're going for unrestricted submarine warfare. We're uh, sending the Zimmerman telegram, and then they uh, make the genius move of even confirming it true instead of leaving it am ambiguous. And America goes to war. And as you said, he's still thinking, I want to raise a regiment. I want to raise a division. Theodore Roosevelt presents himself to the White House and says, bring me in, coach. I want to fight. And yet absolutely nobody, not just in the administration, but even in the U.S. Army, wants him anywhere near the place. Why? Well, Theodore Roosevelt is Theodore Roosevelt, and he's old. He has gone to the Amazon in 1913 and gotten royally sick, so his health is not good. Uh, he, again, does not seem to understand uh, what the war is, is about in terms of strategy and how the, the killing is going to go. And he doesn't seem like the kind of guy you'd want as a subordinate. And particularly uh, not having been or having been president uh, and then having to follow orders from, you know, mere brigadier generals or someone uh, that that this, this, this is not something which is going to go well. And, and when he has had a, a record of criticizing the administrations so much. It's just an absolutely bad fit. One thing to, to add is not only was he trying to get into the war on the Western Front uh, in World War One, he was also talking about, well, maybe if I can't get in right away or I could even join up with the Canadians. And prior to that, he was talking about and asking the Taft administration to go and fight in, in Mexico. So it's a continuing theme, but it's a bad theme. Okay, so he's rejected, uh, and for seemingly uh, very uh, logical reasons, but his sons uh, enlist. And did... There was a very famous uh, there was a very famous uh, song as you mentioned in 1915. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier, a sort of a counter to any possibility of America entering the war. It sounds like Theodore Roosevelt, his greatest dream in life was to see his sons fight on a battlefield. Uh, why, uh, why exactly? Instead of at least him personally. What was that? Why exactly? Why did he? Uh, uh, why, why was he so enthusiastic about not just himself fighting, but also his sons fighting in war? 
I think there's a certain uh, amount of family honor involved again, redeeming the fact that his his father did not, not fight in the Civil War, and that he had, he talks about to his associates about not raising boys, sons, who are going to be molly coddles, who are going to be, oh, sissies, uh, that they should be manly, they should be, um, you know, even even Theodore Jr. is kind of a, a sickly kid. I mean, um, and, and he has to, to raise himself up to go fight, or not fight, but play football at Harvard, and even though he's, he's kind of a runty kid. Um, and so you want your, your sons to be manly just as you wanted yourself to be manly, and the ultimate proof of that is, is on the battlefield. It's like, uh, you know, there's a certain noblesse oblige to Roosevelt that the ruling class, the elite, the aristocracy has certain obligations to society, to the nations. You know, that's what the nobility did throughout the, the old regime. You know, maybe the nobility wasn't paying taxes to Louis XVI's government, but they were fighting in, in all the wars. They were the officer class. So there's, there's that sort of continuation of, of that mentality. And he also thinks that dying uh, on the battlefield is the ultimate death and, and maybe the ultimate proof or validation of your existence. And yet, after all that, once again, we have a, a, a strange turn that after the war is over and after Roosevelt has already lost sons in battle, uh, when it comes to uh, the big, most famous, one of the most momentous debates in the American Senate in American history over whether or not to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and its various conditions, including possibly getting America militarily involved in all sorts of conflicts, he seems to pull back again. He seems to once again say, I'm not so sure we should have a treaty where America is basically responsible for, you know, the, the term today might be used, the world's policeman. It's like, it, it, there's a real yo-yo going on here. Yeah, he, he, he speaks to one of his associates and says, I don't think that Americans should be compelled to uh, to, you know, every time a Czechoslov or Czechoslav, I think he uses the term incorrectly, Czechoslav slaps a Yugoslav that we should be compelled to, to go to war. He's, he's kind of back to his position with Belgium again, that, well, maybe we don't want to get involved. And, and part of that is because Woodrow Wilson is now all for a League of Nations as a peacekeeping uh, uh, mechanism worldwide, America being a member of that. And even though for years preceding the war and even at the beginning of the war, he talks about a, an association of nations to keep the peace and even uses the term League of Nations uh, because I think because Wilson is for something, automatically he's against it. 
Um, so there's there's this really discombobulation in his brain on on any number of levels regarding the issues of war and peace and Woodrow Wilson. So taking that all together, what would you say is, if there is one, what is Theodore Roosevelt's legacy to Americans at his time when it comes to war and peace? And what might we learn from him today? Is, is America <clears throat> is is almost as schizoid about war and peace, maybe more so than, than Roosevelt is. You were mentioning the song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier, which all of a sudden, before long, it's, it's Americans are singing over there. And, and the anti-war movies are replaced by, you know, this incredible anti-Hun propaganda, banning sauerkraut, and all that. So Theodore Roosevelt, who had been kind of a political pariah for a while after splitting the Republican Party, you know, the Democrats weren't about to fall in love with him, and half the Republican Party wasn't either, but by 1920, he would have been the Republican nominee, he would have been the Rep he would have been the president. Um, his position on preparedness seemed to have been validated, and so America was also, you know, more interventionist. Except then, all of a sudden, we then move into walking away from the League of Nations as he was, not building up the military, going back to a very small army. And even again, talk about uh, the contradictions in, in the TR record. TR is a big Navy guy. He had been undersecretary of the Navy. He had sent the uh, Pacific Fleet over towards uh, the range of Manila so we could take advantage of, um, of that situation if war arose with Spain. He had the Great White Fleet. But in terms of funding the army, he had even cut back on funding the very small United States Army when he was president. Um, so again, contradiction upon contradiction, and his immediate legacy um, in terms of preparedness, and think about how isolationist and non-preparedness and neutral America becomes in the 1930s. It's, it's not under the Republican presidents that the Neutrality Acts are, are passed. It's, um, it's under Franklin Roosevelt. It's under the Democrats. Uh, the investigations against uh, the armaments industry and the sales to the Allies, etc., etc., uh, are, are occurring in uh, the early 30s, uh, under the Nye Committee, under progressives, under almost prairie radicals. So it's, it's a very complex situation, as, it, as these things often are. You think there's going to be some straight left-right continuum. There isn't, and there's not even a, a great uh, or a pure continuum in terms of, of Roosevelt or his, his leg legacy. Well, so Theodore Roosevelt, embodying uh, perhaps uh, in a larger-than-life way the contradictions of the United States. Very well put. 
David Petruja, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.